Thank you for all being here this evening. You know, sometimes in a group this size, it feels like, um, you know, you not being here wouldn't make a difference. But energetically and visually, it would make a difference. <laughs> that we, we would miss you. And so just somehow in honor of that, I wanted to especially welcome the youngest member of our community. Who is the youngest member? <laughs> is there anyone under 20? <laughs> how, how old are you guys? <laughs> 16? 15? Welcome. Thank you for being here. It's really an honor to have you here um, amidst um, uh, our um, sometimes aging community. It's lovely to have your presence here. Thanks for coming. <laughs> and, and so then, who's the oldest member of our community? <laughs> Who is over 70? Oh, wonderful. Are you brave enough to say how old you are? Wonderful. And 71. Well, thank you both for gracing us with all your wisdom. 84. Thank you so much for coming and, all, and gracing us, all three of you, with those many years. That's wonderful. There's all kinds of diversity that we, um, we can acknowledge and maybe next time acknowledge some other kind. But for now, just the, the uh, expression of, of uh, our youth and our elders, it's a pleasure. So I wanted to talk about faith this evening. Uh, it's one of my favorite subjects. And I, it's one of my favorite subjects because faith really is at the basis of our empowerment as individuals and as communities. And I was thinking about the man who went to Africa and asked everyone to um, uh, take their lives. What was the name of that guy? Jim Jones. And how people in that mistaken faith took their own lives. and. And looking at the difference between that kind of faith and the faith that the Buddha um, describes and asks us to see, that quality of mind and heart that lives inside of us, and the difference between those two types of faith is that one faith was um, posited on an incredible devotion that didn't allow for questioning or challenging, a kind of commitment that was actually distorted. And it was distorted because it wasn't based on the wholesome qualities, or we could say that it wasn't based on love and wisdom. And that the faith that the Buddha invites us to is a faith 
faith that is actually something that we each individually and as a community come to that isn't about belief and actually isn't about devotion, though devotion can be one of the vehicles towards faith. It actually is that capacity, and I know that each one of us here has experienced it already, that capacity to see something but not see it with our eyes, to see it and experience it with such clarity, with such a sense of, oh, I got you, oh, oh yeah, yeah, that we know that it's true. So it's the, so another way to talk about it is actually as awakening, which is the process that we are all involved in anyway. We awaken to what is true. We, we open inside of ourselves through our capacity to be present and through our capacity to, in that moment, to not be distracted each one of us, I, I know, has had this experience of knowing that something is true. I mean, it could just be something as simple as you reaching for a pan because we were distracted and we burn our fingers. We know it's hot. In that moment, we know it's hot. And there isn't any doubt about that experience. It's visceral, it's in the body, and it's acknowledged because it's so strong. So in that moment, there's no question about not understanding your experience and not having faith in it. The Buddha says that we have this capacity, and it's so beautiful. We have this capacity to know the truth. And take a moment to really contemplate the deep empowerment of that, that we know what is true, that we have this capacity to know what is true, and that really this path over and over again can be described as coming to know what is true. The other word that is commonly used is insight what really is true. And from that truth, we are moved into action. And one of the things that we're moved into action with once we touch this truth is to know what's skillful and what isn't, what will support us in our healing and our safety and protection, and what won't. So just going back to the simile of being burnt, once we're burnt, we're not likely to make that mistake again because we trust that understanding of the experience. It was visceral, we experienced it, we understood it, it was simple, and we, not, we aren't going to do it again. So the, um, the, the traditional definition of faith is trusting, trusting the experience, and its function is to clarify. We know the experience, we know we got burnt. It, it is described as settling murky water, or like setting out across a journey. 
it is manifested as non-fogginess or resolution. <clears throat> it should be regarded as a hand because it takes hold of the profitable. So when we think about a path of love and when we think about a path of healing or a, that part of really living inside our own skin in dignity. It's another way of saying it. The Buddha says that the first quality that comes into the mind when we're on this path is the quality of faith because it knows what is wholesome and profitable. It is the hand that grasps what is profitable. That is the quality of faith. So do you see that it doesn't have to be do it doesn't have to um, rest on beliefs or not doubting. Rather, it is about that quality to see what is awakening and what is profitable, what is wholesome and what is healing. So really a beautiful quality. And I um, and I wanted to uh, say just a little bit about my teacher, Ruth Dennison, because when she went on her pilgrimage to awakening, they didn't have communities like this, so she couldn't come every Thursday and listen to the teachings in the 70s. She went to Burma with her husband and ended up practicing with Ubekin and did a very intense three-month retreat with Ubekin and came to the first stage of awakening, that, that opening into seeing things so clearly and in a way where there isn't any sense of separation or polarity of I'm here and you're there or I'm here and the experience is there. When everything is experienced in unity, so the that first that first um, that first opening that's described as stream entry, um, um, she, uh, her mind opened, and then in her continued excitement to learn more about the path, she went to Japan and studied with some teachers, and there there was tremendous emphasis on effort and making right effort and make more effort, make more effort, make more effort. And she, she has an incredible capacity to concentrate. And she concentrated so much on her breath um, that, that she um, actually moved out of her body. And at some point she found herself at the corner of a wall and a ceiling and unable to get back into her body. And she was so disconnected, she felt as though she was dying. And when, after many hours, when someone came into the room to see what was going on, she managed, with some difficulty, because she, she wasn't in her body, to say, I'm out of my body and, I, and I'm dying. And the, um, the student went to get the master, and the master came into the room, and, and um, the student told the master again, and the master said, die. And that <laughs> shocked her back into her body. <laughs> but she found that her body was, 
and her mind were totally fragmented, that there wasn't any coherence and capacity to actually even be mindful of an object like her breath, that it, everything was kind of out there in a, in a very intense dissociation. So that was the end of, of that trip, and she came back. And she said, she said that she spent two years doing two practices. And this is such a, so moving to me because it's such an expression of faith. And the two practices, one was sweeping the floor. And she would sweep, she has a, 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 um, her center now, but f- at first it was her vacation house in the desert near Joshua Tree. So the desert kept blowing sand into um, the concrete patio around the house. And she would just sweep the sand away and sweep it and say, I know I'm sweeping. Just to say that, I know I am sweeping. And sweep, I know I am sweeping. And then the other thing she would do is that she would lie on her bed and she named her dog after her teacher, Ubekin, and she would put (laughs) as an act to try and stay connected. And she would put Ubekin, little doggy Ubekin, on her chest and she would feel his heat against her chest. And through that, try to access the movement of the breath. And at first, it just was, I know the weight of Ubekin. I know the weight of Ubekin. And she spent two years doing this before she had access to the breath. That kind of faith is a faith that is not born of pleasant sensations or even of getting results or even getting results quickly. But rather it is this understanding of what what is our path and what is healing? What is awakening? Where is love? And committing over and over again even when it seems like you're not getting anywhere at all. Imagine that two years of not finding a single breath and what faith it must take to know that because you're on a path, you keep doing it. That is faith. That's that beautiful quality of faith. So it doesn't depend on sensations. And just another um, uh, um, another uh, story of, uh, of a wonderful teacher in the Dharma, Ramdas, who talked about faith in terms of his teacher. And when he had his stroke, in the beginning feeling profoundly forsaken by his teacher, you know, How could you have allowed this to happen to me? I have been such a devoted student. I have committed myself to teaching for years and years and years. And how could you do this? Because he too couldn't access mindfulness. And then at some point he realized that the stroke was a gift from his teacher and wasn't an expression of abandonment. 
And in that, he began to find a way of living that was more infused with humility. And that, you know, he's the first one to admit that was a quality that wasn't always so strong in his life before (laughs) his stroke. And out of that humility came a great love, came a great and profound unconditional love. So when we enter into this path with faith, we are not talking about pleasant experiences or easy experiences or ones that aren't painful. We're talking about a way of holding our lives that is always dedicated to what is heart-opening and what is loving and what is wise. So then uh, to look at some of the things that the uh, areas that the Buddha has invited us to have faith in more specifically, and that is to have faith in the refuges. So first there is this quality of I can do it. And this is a place where the Buddha was unwavering. You know, and there's something that really struck me when recently I read a story about the Buddha um, and the early days of the Sangha. Um, And his cousin, okay, now it just went out of my mind, his cousin decided to follow the Buddha and to ordain. And in front of him was a butcher. Now, I don't know if you know in Hindi culture, butchers are really low down in rank. You know, they, they are not respected. And take a moment something that would be equivalent here. You know, maybe um, where, wherever we notice, we our minds glance over a person and there isn't always respect. You know, sometimes it might be thinking of age, how we dismiss those who are young or those who are old. Or think about, you know, someone on the streets or someone of a different ethnicity or color because of the ways we've been conditioned to racism. Whatever it is. And and then in, in this context, Imagine a profoundly wise teacher putting the President of the United States second because this person arrived at the Sangha gate first. That's what the Buddha did. He he ordained the butcher first and then his cousin, who is a very wealthy prince, second. That respect isn't a respect out of belief. It is a clear capacity of an awakened human being to see that every human being has the capacity to have faith and to awaken. Every one of us. And it doesn't matter how far away we feel from that capacity. The Buddha says the capacity is always there. And Sharon Salzberg um, came up with a simile that has always struck me. And it's the simile of walking into a room. And perhaps this room has been in darkness for a long time. 
But as soon as you turn the switch, the room is flooded with light. It doesn't matter how long it's been in darkness. That's our capacity. It doesn't matter how far away we have been or how long it's been. In the turning, that capacity is awakened. So one of the things the Buddha invited us to in terms of faith is this capacity, this capacity to awaken, to know truth deeply and profoundly and to know love deeply and profoundly. And then he said, there isn't just this capacity, but there actually is a path. That there is something that we can do to awaken the capacity. And one of the most profound things we can do is to be present, which is what we've been practicing. And I just want to come into this in a different way uh, around witnessing and being present. Because when you think or when you contemplate, when we contemplate, some of the places where we carry a, a deep grief or sadness or pain inside of us, almost always, at least I found this for myself, it's because I haven't felt witnessed in that place, or I haven't felt seen, or I haven't felt acknowledged. That capacity that we have to witness is a profound capacity that brings healing. Because when you remember now the places where you feel safe and seen and heard by a community or by another human being or even by nature, when we're in nature and we feel that, that profound transformation and opening that happens from being witnessed. That is what we are doing with ourselves. And it might feel prosaic and we might forget sometimes because we are witnessing something like the breath where it's like, my God, this is so boring, you know, or um, it's so uncomfortable, or what the hell am I doing? Which those of us who've been practicing for many years still find ourselves asking ourselves, you know, what am I doing? But that training of being present for the breath or of the body deepens until we start witnessing ourselves at a profound level. And it is that capacity to witness and to see that is liberating because we get to see ourselves as we truly are just as sometimes you see someone else in front of you that you love and care about just as they are. And when I know that you've experienced that, it is profoundly opening to see someone just as they are, to see ourselves and our experiences. And the Buddha says we have this capacity. We have it. And that we can have faith in it. And then, of course, there is the witnessing or the capacity for mindfulness in the context of the whole Eightfold Path. To know, to understand correctly, not through conceptual beliefs, but to understand deeply, to think skillfully, 
to behave ethically and to practice this beautiful combination of collectedness, witnessing, and, um, and energy. The, this path is, is, is it's exquisite. So right understanding, right thought, right speech, right livelihood, right action, right mindfulness, right concentration, and right effort those beautiful qualities of mind. So then finally, having faith in the Sangha, having faith in the Buddha, having faith in the Dharma, having faith in the Sangha. And I was just, um, I was just um, going through, because I'm in the middle of moving, and I, I forgot that I had this wonderful um, book on, um, on the sayings of Martin Luther King. And this is refuge in the Sangha. There is something unfolding in the universe, whether one speaks of it as an unconscious process, or whether one speaks of it as an unmoved mover, or whether someone speaks of it as a personal guard. There is something in the universe that unfolds for justice. And so in Montgomery, we felt somehow that as we struggled, we had cosmic companionship. This is what we're doing here together, is creating that. And this was one of the things that kept the people together, the belief that the universe is on the side of justice, and we can say awakening. God grant that as men and women all over the world struggle against evil systems, they will struggle with love in their hearts, with understanding goodwill. Agape says you must go on with wise restraint and calm reasonableness, but you must keep moving. We have a great opportunity to build here a great nation, a nation where all live together as family and respect the dignity and worth of all human personality. We must keep moving towards that goal. I know that some people are saying we must slow up. They are writing letters to the North and they are appealing to white people of goodwill and to the Negroes saying, slow up, you're pushing too fast. They are saying we must adopt a policy of moderation. Now, if moderation means moving on with wise restraint and calm reasonableness, then moderation is a great virtue that all of us of goodwill must seek to achieve in this tense period of transition. But if moderation means slowing up in the move for justice and capitulating to the whims and caprices of the guardians, of the deadening status quo, then moderation is a tragic vice which all of goodwill must condemn. We must continue to move on. Our self-respect is at stake. The prestige of our nation is at stake. Civil rights is an internal moral issue which may well determine the destiny of our civilization. We must keep moving with wise restraint and love and with proper discipline 
and dignity. That's faith in community, that deep belief that there is a communion of love that is at the heart of our community and at the heart of our universe and that it is unfolding on the path towards justice and equity and awakening. And I think of Desmond Tutu, who I listened to recently, who sat for years and years in front of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and who heard the most horrendous stories of um, brutality that was perpetrated in the name of apartheid. And he said there is a moral universe that we belong to, and it is founded on love. That is the faith that the Buddha invited us to, a faith in the Sangha. So do we go up to 9 or 9.30? So um, th- th- let me say just one other thing that I that the Buddha speaks to around faith and ar- around um, commitment that I have taken profound solace in, and that is understanding of karma. Because if karma didn't work, faith wouldn't work. Does that make sense to you? No. karma is the understanding that whatever we intend always brings results because we are living in a universe that is held in relationship we are actually not a separate entity divorced from nature even though we sometimes feel that way And just as though they're physical laws, like do you remember when you were at school you learned pressure and volume and temperature are intimately related and if you change one, the other changes? The same is true in the laws of our mind and in our bodies, that we are intimately related. And that one of the things that most changes the set of relationships in your mind and in your body is your capacity to intend. And the Buddha said, not only does this change, but it changes according to a law that is, um, that is immutable. And that this law is, if you intend something that has wholesome qualities associated with it, the consequence will always be wholesome. So for example, If you intend to be angry, the next moment that's an expression of anger, the Buddha says, will always bring suffering or the fruits of anger as an unwholesome quality. If you intend to be generous and then are generous, the Buddha says, the consequence will always support your heart and mind to open and bring wholesome results in. He was unequivocal in saying that when the intention is skillful, there are always skillful results. 
And when the intention is unskillful, there are always unskillful results. Can you see how beautiful that is? Because no matter <coughs> what happens, if you intend just that thought, I really want to be present. Even if in the next moment I'm not, I know <coughs> that I wanted to be. And I can reflect on the goodness of that and know that that intention, if not in the next moment, somewhere in my life will bring the fruition of goodness into being. It is the place of our deepest empowerment that we have this capacity to intend. And that from the skillfulness of our intentions, we build the force in our lives of goodness and wholesomeness. And if we forget and we, and we move in, you know, which we forget all the time, irritation or um, revenge or whatever it is, and we catch it, we change the stream immediately. It's like the river of revenge going, you know. I, I don't know how many of you have been in divorce proceedings, but there were times I can honestly say I was filled with re wanting revenge. And then, you know, you sort of like, I can't believe that. I can't believe that was said, you know. I, that is so outrageous. I can't believe. And then it's like, you know, watching that, I'm going to get even. And it's like, oh, 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 I just got it. Oh, oh. I want to meet, I want to meet that feeling that I'm experiencing right now with caring. And immediately that river is deflected and it becomes a tiny little trickle because I've brought up the intention of caring. And that, that intention builds its own stream, the Buddha said, that carries us, that carries us to liberation. That's the power of karma. He said that it is absolutely definite, definite. He is unwavering in the Satipatthana Sutta. He says it's definite. Because of karma, if you were to be present every moment for a week, there's no doubt you would be fully liberated. That's because of karma. Because every intention to be mindful and every moment of mindfulness conditions the next moment. And you create the stream that at some point becomes unstoppable. And that, he says, you can have faith in. It's really beautiful. So, um, so then, let me just end, because I'd, it would be great to have a discussion about this. And, and to say that there are um, particular traditional conditions for generating um, faith. And one is associating with people who are practicing the precepts, who are living ethically. Another is listening to the Dharma. A third is being mindful, witnessing, paying appropriate attention, and then lastly, practicing the Dharma. Let's see, I could keep on talking, but it's, but it's nice to open it up and um, to share with us, to share with each other. I, I'm really interested to hear from you what your experiences of faith are. 
I mean, I think it's wonderful for a community to hear that, and also what you think the challenges are. I know you all have faith because you're here, and you wouldn't be here without faith. Yeah, and maybe you could say your name. My name is Michael. Yes. Thank you. So I, I really appreciate your presence and your way of expressing dharma. I really appreciated the talk. Thank you. I must have faith, but I, on a conscious level, I don't even like the idea. I, I cringe every time I hear you use the word faith. Yeah. It just turns me off. Yeah. Yeah. But I know that's some kind of a pattern I have an aversion to what I think of as faith, belief. So I'm going back to the old idea of faith, which isn't what you're talking about. But I can't get around, I just don't have faith in faith. You know, I, I, I am more of a doubter. I take the path of doubt, and it seems to work. I, I agree. So I, I don't have it. It annoys me when I hear faith. Because I grew up Catholic, and it was all about faith and belief. and. Right. So that's what drew me here. I don't feel I need faith. I think it's very nuts and bolts and, and really practical and in, in front of you. And maybe you don't like it, but just being with it with some degree of tenderness is enough for me. So maybe that is faith. I don't know. I just don't like the word or the notion or I don't like this whole place. Right. And yet I love right. it. I, I love being here. But I just... There's some kind of a paradox. Yeah. I yeah. drag myself here, yeah. like to yeah. church. Right. But right. it's good. It's very nurturing. Right. It's nurturing. Yeah. That's, that's the only reason I come. Maybe that's faith. Yeah. But I really don't like to even admit it. <laughs> well, thank you so for that's all admitting I it. I'd like, that's to, so I'd like to be a man of faith. I think faith could be wonderful for yeah. me, but I just really don't know how to get yeah. there at all. Uh, thank you. But Thanks. I enjoy well, your experience of yeah. faith, kind of. <laughs> so really, I, I do appreciate what you're saying. It's just uh, yeah. beyond my mind. I don't know. Does anyone resonate with that? Yeah. Oh, go ahead, yeah. Say your name what? first. Uh, pardon me? Say your name first. Oh, my name is Isabel. And uh, uh, what Michael over here just said reminded me of something somebody once, I can't remember who said this, some Englishman a long time ago said, there is, more, there is more faith in honest doubt than in half the creeds. Yeah. And I think that may be <laughs> worth, uh, uh, worth hanging on to. Yeah, I have trouble with the word faith too and trouble with the word spirituality and all that kind of thing. And I tend to think of Buddhism as more a practice than a faith. Um, But, uh, yeah, you have to, I guess, believe in the the significance of that, in the significance of the practice. There is some element. (laughs) Uh, But uh, uh, I I also do have trouble with the idea of faith. 
So look, Isabel, could you talk about where your doubting has been really helpful? Uh, about my your doubting. My doubting? Yeah. <sighs> and this goes for all of you. Well, I suppose it keeps me from falling into some kind of easy uh, uh, answer, some easy answer to questions. I don't think there are easy answers to the, the so-called big questions uh, uh, that, that we might have. And I think that, uh, uh, therefore, to, to be a little, to be critical, to be unwilling, to uh, just say, oh yeah, that's uh, that must be the way it is. Um, I don't think that's particularly helpful or or, uh, or healthy. Thank you. That's mm -hmm. beautiful. That's a beautiful definition of faith. <laughs> In the Buddhist terminology, and so I just thank you so much, both of you, for say, um, for bringing it up, because that kind of doubting that is really willing to investigate yes. what is true about this. You know, what feels kind? Because another definition of truth is kindness. And kindness is truth. You know, that's why the Dalai Lama could say that the whole practice is about kindness. Because kindness is just the other side of the coin to truth. And if we, if we feel close to kindness, we're close to truth. And so that capacity to investigate and to say, well, what is true and what is kind? That kind of doubting, that's beautiful. And this practice is, is predicated on that, of that willingness to really look and not to take what someone says, including myself, to be the truth, but to check it out for yourself and to see, does this make sense? You know, and, and that's... that's that, that is what I hear you both talking to, and no one should ever have that taken away, that capacity to doubt and to challenge. And that, shouldn't, that, that should never be taken away from our culture as well, that capacity to doubt and challenge. Because... Awakening and democracy go hand in hand, and they're based on that. Thank you so much. That was, yeah, yeah. Hi, I'm Amy. Um, and I was just thinking, um, as Isabel's speaking um, about uh, doubt, um, I think um, um, if I didn't doubt, then I wouldn't be doing anything to um, heal myself. I think the more I have a doubting mind, the more uh, I have um, a question of my how much how much I believe that good's going to happen. Faith. Um, the more I, I I take care of myself, and that's my way of kind of like uh, prayer, uh, prayer in action. Like I'll uh, I'll do a lot of physical um, movements activities. Um, and that kind of is like, kind of like a religion for me. Yeah. It um, yeah. brings me back into the here and now, into the present. Right. And yeah. that's kind of like my my goddess, you know, like my deities. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think 
that's a form of faith for me, is what makes me feel happy and good. Um, so I'm grateful for doubt, for my doubting mind, because if it wasn't for that, I'd probably be like a stalemate, like standstill, like, you know, like the bee, like nothing going on. Yeah, thank you. That's really beautiful. And I wanted to say one other thing about doubt, though, to distinguish it between wholesome doubt and unwholesome doubt. Because unwholesome doubt is when we forget that we can do it. That's unwholesome doubt. When we doubt ourselves and our capacity to awaken and to have a profound experience of insight. That's unwholesome doubt. And that unwholesome doubt actually comes from our conditioning of taking messages that we've received from the past and believing them. Because often this culture doesn't reflect back to us that capacity to to come deeply to live in our hearts and in truth. And that is really important. If you were really honest right now, would you stand in that understanding of saying, I know I can awaken. I know I can awaken in this lifetime. I have that capacity. You don't have to put up your hands. <laughs> but I ask you, because in, in reflecting, do I, really, do I really have faith that I can? Often we touch the place where we don't believe that we can. It's really important to see that place. Because if we don't turn towards it and acknowledge it, it continues to exert its influence in how we practice in very subtle ways sometimes and in sometimes not so subtle ways. So it's really important to look at that doubt and to name it as a habitual belief that has no truth. You know, and one of the things that's really great about us sitting here is that probably everyone has experienced that unwholesome doubt. And we can, as a community, just in this moment, acknowledge that and disentangle from it, actively disentangle and stand in that faith. It doesn't mean we have to know it intellectually, but in that intuition that knows we can touch a depth of insight that then brings us to an unshakable faith about the efficacy of this path. We can do that. And if we really, really aligned ourselves in this moment right now, uh, it becomes just home. It becomes the conditions for a different practice. Oh, so even if, if the mind is wandering and dis- discursive and, and, and fragmented while meditating and, and we notice it, you know, that we're, we're off again, you know, right. in, in, into the wild blue yonder. And if this, 
it just keeps on going on. But as long as we notice it, uh, here I go again, your wandering mind, and you know, sleepy mind, sloth and torpor. As, as, as long as we notice all the, all the, um, the, um, the hindrances, then that's okay. I mean, we can still get enlightened. Right, right. because because yes, because in that mo- in the in- continued intention to be present, we understand we are contributing to that river, to that flow. That will take us. That's the law of karma. That is the law of karma. Exactly. And that, from the practice that we've done already, and the kinds of experiences we've had from our practice, we take that and we say, if it's been true for this, then it must be true for the future, that every moment of presence and the beautiful qualities of mind that you intend, you contribute to your awakening. The thing that supports that most strongly is aligning your whole being in that and not detracting from the force of those intentions with the unwholesome doubt. Like, well, I'll kind of sit here, but it probably is not going to make any difference. So you're kind of intending, but you see how that intention to be um, mindful isn't as strong because the unwholesome doubt is undercutting it. But if we're fully present, understanding that 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 full presence is contributing to that awakening, that is happening inside of us, the power of that presence is unmitigated and it has a great contribution then. So when we're mindful, we're really mindful. We're, we're like, I'm, I'm 100% here. I'm 100% here. And there's great power in that, yeah. yeah. Could you give him the... My name's Timothy. So I certainly, you know, I've experienced the efficacy of practice and particularly on long retreats have seen, you know, some shifts, if you will. On the other hand, that this path was sort of designed for monks and nuns to sit for thousands and thousands of hours in a lifetime. And there's discussion, as you mentioned earlier, about the jhanas and so forth, which seem like a requirement to full enlightenment, which therefore I don't see it's possible in my lifetime because I'll never be, you know, Monk, you, you'll never. You, oh, oh, it's not possible because you'll never be a monk, and you have to get to jhanas. Right, so it's sort of. Oh, I get. Well, you. I value it. Yeah. I don't really get. Right. Like how the path of. Thanks for saying that. I bet there are a lot of people who think the same thing. Thanks for mentioning that, Timothy. Um, so, um, you know, someone very famous, Francis of Assisi. He had his profound awakening listening to a bird call. I'll just mention one other of my favorite stories before we come to an end. And that is there was this, there was this monk in a monastery who must have been developmentally delayed. That's what we'd say now. And so he couldn't understand any instruction. You know what? He couldn't even sweep. And I've, I've lived in monasteries, and that's like the basic task they give you, especially when, you know, when the 
the um, at least the abbot in this monastery in Australia, when. I suspect when he thought I was a bit uppity, he would send me off to go sweeping for hours. <laughs> and, um, and the monks went to the Buddha and said, look, you have to get rid of this monk because he can't even understand where to sweep and how to sweep. And the Buddha uh, had the capacity to see into pe uh, people's past lives, and he saw that this monk at one point being a, a blacksmith. And so he said, I want you to take this coin and to rub it with a white cloth. And he gave the monk the coin and the white cloth. And all you have to do is to watch the cloth while you rub it, while you rub the coin. So the monk is there and he's rubbing. That's, he can do this. He's rubbing the coin with the cloth. And he notices that the white cloth becomes dirty from rubbing the coin. And at one point in that noticing, because he'd worked with metal and seen the, and, and had this kind of empathy with metal, watching the metal be rubbed with the white cloth, his mind awakened. I say that because Actually, you don't know. You do not know when the mind will awaken. And it is absolutely true that you do not need jhanas. I mean, and the Buddha says, you don't need jhanas for the first awakening. You don't. And, and I myself experienced a, awakening without... without um, uh, I experienced awakening very early on in my practice. You have to do the work either way. Either you, you experience a profound awakening first and then you catch up with all your um, um, unwholesome energies. Or you take it the other way and you work on developing your wholesome energies and then awakening happens. But you can't say, you cannot say, it can't happen because I can't do jhana and I'm not a monk. It's not true. That's why, that's why we're sitting here together. We're sitting here in community saying, not saying, um, we're here because there's a wisdom that knows better than that unwholesome doubt, the truth, even when we're besieged by those unwholesome doubts. There is a collective understanding and intuition that knows it's possible. And then there are those of us who are saying from our own experience, it's possible. And we're not any different than you. We're not. And some of us are... Okay, so we're coming close to the end, and I just wanted to... Uh, take a few moments to do metta, and I'd like to invite us to do metta by standing up because we've been sitting down for a long time. <laughs> and let's take each other's hands. Let's just find different hands to take. And... Um, acknowledging in this moment that we have the capacity to be mindful, just to be present, not expecting the experience to
to be one way or another, but to connect with the intention that we want to be present. Good enough. Acknowledging the standing and the touching of hands and the community that we are part of, this temporary community tonight. And taking a moment to wish well for each person in this room. May you stay connected with your dignity. May you be safe and protected tonight and all nights. May you stay connected with your heart of love. Giving those gifts of well-wishing and then taking a moment to receive them, allowing your body and skin to become permeable to receive those wishes. Giving and receiving. And then we share the merit of our practice with all beings. May our practice contribute to our well-being and the well-being of all beings. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for your beautiful, beautiful being, for your practice, for your presence. Thank you.